Okay, welcome back to Permaculture Tonight. It has been a while. Things have been crazy. We've been traveling. And in our travels, we met amazing people. And we went to Missouri and New Mexico, Arizona and California, different places in California. And one of those people that we met was Stephen Smith. And he is the son of two corn experts. His family has been traveling the world working on corn for decades and they're going to be speaking at the heirloom expo in santa rosa this fall and right now we're going to be talking to stephen smith he's going to talk to us about rare corn he's going to be talking to us about hand pollinating and tons more so let's just dive in uh yeah corn is part of my family heritage um my grandmother, uh, Carol Louise, she was part Cherokee Indian, and her, um, kind of her stepfather in a way, um, Ralph Emerson Hurst, uh, he was at the 1893 World Chicago World's Corn Fair when the uh, famed uh, accidental hybrid of Reed Gelident was being showcased at that very fair. And the two Reed, um, the Reed, um, James Reed and his uh, father Robert were there, and my great-great-grandfather obtained an ear of corn of their dent corn from them, and it's been in my family for, ever since, so for 120 years. Wow. So this is a legacy. Is Reed Gelident? Yeah, it's, a, it's pretty much a legacy, and Reed Gelident is the corn that ba basically all modern GMO corn has uh, roots in. Huh. 100% of modern hybrid corn and GMO can trace its roots back to Reed Gelident. Wow. So this is the mother of all that corn. Pretty much, yes. It's, um, it's a very, very narrow germplasm base, but it's, it's one of the most famed corns of all. Even though it was accidentally created by um, the, Reed's, uh, the Reed family. Interesting. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your parents uh, did for a living? Uh, both of my parents were crop breeders for a um, seed research division of a um, company that they don't they bleh, they no longer have the um, the seed research anymore. They discontinued that not long after my parents retired. But both of my parents, um, they bred corn, wheat, soybeans, and um, some barley as well. And they got to travel all over the world from, to, from places like South America to Hawaii. They were mainly stationed in Hawaii where they maintained the, um, the winter nurseries of the corn, um, mostly. My dad worked mainly with corn, and my mom was kind of like the, the seed packager and seed, um, other seed geneticists like my dad was. But they both pretty much did everything. Wow. And so after that career working uh, for that, you know, international company, um, they started getting involved with heirloom corn, right? Yeah, my, um, not long after they retired, well, even when they hadn't retired, they were still working with the heirloom and all of the land races. Because during the 60s and 70s, there was a big uprising in the, um, especially the land races, uh, mostly from South America and the Caribbean as well. There was really high interest in um, in those during their when they were breeding stuff. So a lot of that was being used. Uh, 
And with the the nursery down there in Hawaii that they were um, they were working at and maintaining, they pretty much got to grow practically almost every land race that was known at that point. Of course, many have arisen since then, but um, a lot of the uh, Mexican land races they used in their uh, breeding, and a lot of the Caribbean flints too, and a lot of the Argentinian flints as well. But it was the I still remember when my dad was telling me about the um, original 24 races of maize of Mexico, such as Palomero, Toloqueño, Cacahuentol, and um, all of the other ones that's down there. And he would always tell me about growing them there uh, at our place when I was younger. And he said that he, he'd always have the um, farmers and people almost wreck outside because of how tall most of them got and how big the ears, um, especially like that holla that I showed at the uh, heirloom festival had become and everything. So that's, that's really what kind of got me into the, the land races and the heirlooms. But a big part of it came from my uh, grandmother's um, corn as well. Yeah, so it was the stories, right? The narrative. Yeah, I feel like corn has this capacity to strike, uh, you know, ignite our imagination and to get us motivated to garden because... It's that the little seed, and then it goes creates so much biomass. I was I was listening to Omnivore's Dilemma uh, go through the history of corn and how it has this genetic trick for doing that. It only takes three percent from the soil, and the rest of it's, it actually comes out of the air, which is pretty phenomenal. It's a uh, uh-huh. it's an amazing plant, and I think few people understand <clears throat> that um, as we go around uh, demonizing, you know industrialization of corn, we, we, we have to uh, look at the plant itself as, as a separate entity from its industrialization because a plant, you know, is amazing in its own right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree completely. And most people, I usually tell them, I'm like, I do talk to my corn plants. They don't talk back usually. But even if they did, I always tell people, I'm like, corn is a very intelligent plant. Almost all plants are. Because corn has to know how many nutri- how much nitrogen it needs, how much magnesium it needs, how much day length it has to receive, or, not, or well, you have day length, in order to tassel and silk at the same time. What silks um, get the pollen to make ears. And it's, it's so amazing of how, how far we've come from the Tiacente up to the modern corn plant now. Yeah, I was listening to that in, in Michael Pollan's book, him talk, I, I love Audible for this reason, uh, so I can listen to it while I work, and they were talking about how there's a genetic, there's a moment of genetic mutation where the sexual organs of the plant separated, and then you had the ears that were down low, the tassels down, uh, the tassels up high, and then you had the ears down low, and that, when it switched that, because they were both up top initially. And when it switched that, it had to become uh-huh. dependent upon people. And that is the moment of real change in corn. Yeah, it was. And then after that change, uh, humans started further domesticating it for um, larger ears and more productivity. But basically, in general, early corn, or the ancestor of modern corn, after it was domesticated from Tiasini, it the actual ancestor existed about 5200 B.C., but it, it was basically a highland corn. So really all of the corn we have today was, in it, uh, was initially highland. Was it but popcorn? when the farmers and Native American, it, it was like, it was kind of in between a popcorn and a podcorn. 
but it's there's still a lot of debate on exactly what it looked like since the archaeological fragments are not very clear but it, it's initially said to be like a pod popcorn but popcorn was the one of the first initial corns that were developed uh, or not really developed but selected that came out of the um, the wild ancestor Wow so at what point did the individual kernels lose their individual? Casings and did, when did it become a single like sheath around the whole uh, seed head? Because I mean, did 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 they the, have the popcorn? Because I I could see popping the popcorn with the heat uh, next to a fire as a really easy way to get that out of there without doing all that work. <laughs> uh yeah. Yeah, popcorn was really initially just a rather simple type of corn to use and everything. So that's that's why it pretty much became so popular and everything. But the actual date or time frame, you could, I guess, probably say with the uh, when it actually lost the glooms and everything, that popcorn, scientists really don't know. It's a lot of corn's um, older history is still pretty much unknown. But I would say not long after the wild ancestor um, was further being domesticated, because uh, humans wanted to be able to have access to the actual kernel itself, so they just went ahead and uh, selected for um, the non-glooms. But cause there's not much popcorn that exists today, but you can still find it in some countries. But some of the tribes uh, still carry it. But it's a, uh, it's a very ancestral form, but popcorns were, came uh, more popular because well, they could pop and they could feed a lot of people. And most of the popcorns also were flower corn. It's like um, that one that I uh, had in my presentation, Confite Morocho from Peru. It, it and Confite Puntiagudo and Confite Punino, also from Peru, all three of them come in a flower form as well. And that's simply because when you grow so much popcorn like they did for thousands of years, it mutates a lot. And flower corn was an initial mutation of popcorn, and so was sweet corn. The sweet corn is descendant from um, the popcorn. Wow. So what's flint corn then? Uh, flint corn is kind of like a, a dent um, dent, I don't want to say relative, but selection, I guess you could kind of say, um, most of the, most of the Caribbean flints like, um, Candale and, um, Cuban yellow flint and all of them, they're actually descended also from popcorn. Um, Pyra Naranja from the, um, from a, the little area down in Colombia, that's where all the Caribbean flints come from. So really flints are basically a in a way, a bigger version of popcorn, but they, they were, they've been selected for main use as hominy. Um, that's what their biggest use is. You can use them for flour as well, but they're better off used as hominy or making soup or a um, form of uh, mush. Okay, so here's, a, here's an interesting question. So I, I, I don't know if you've read Carol Depp's work, but she talks about how she took painted mountain corn and separated it out into individual colors. So she had tan, she had white, she had yellow and she had uh, red um, and, and, and blue. And so, and she figured out that each one had a culinary application. And, and so like I reasoned that, you know, okay, well there's all these 
you know, tribes with each culinary thing, and they're you know either hand pollinating or segregating or something, or that's their tribe's thing. But when we forced all the tribes together under these reservations consistently, and all the different like smaller tribes within that you know that nation, what happened is we created uh -huh. we created those rainbow corns, and we smashed their culinary meanings all together, and it made this. This 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 illegible, you know, uh, this illegible genetic mess of something that they've been working on consistently for you know thousands of years. Yeah, most most tribal corns are extremely um, rainbow and mixed together. A lot of the Mandan corns that the uh, the Mandan tribe uh, they've merged with, I think, three other tribes now, but. A lot of their flower corns and flint corns, they're uh, they're mixed in with other colors. So one of them's called Mandan blue, but it's it's blue and yellow and white. So it's it's not completely pure blue. But after they were forced onto the reservations, it kind of it really screw, basically screwed up the entire genetic diversity that they once had. But um, the um, the Pawnee had a um, eagle corn, much like the Cherokee do, and the they pretty much lost it when they were forced onto the reservations and they had to go to the families that um that still had ears of it in medicine bundles but they couldn't get the seed immediately because you have to wait a certain period of time for the um the bundles to be able to be opened so that was the only way that that corn was um maintained and of course the cherokee brought their uh, eel corn with them on the trail of tears and but um more uh more so the the color thing with most of the tribes they depending on which tribe it is colors had a sacred meaning um some colors meant like red of course being like blood or warrior and strength and power green um for like earth and most of the yellow and white corns for the tribes were seen as a sign or a um association with um, the mother or mother corn, usually is what it's also called. But they, the colors had special meanings. Um, for the Hopi, I think it means some kind of directions, um, like the cardinal directions as well as seasons. But it, it varies according to tribe, but most of the colors and everything are sacred. So they, they selected corn um, for not only for food, but for ceremonial purposes as well, since color had a lot to do with it. Wow. And that differed with each nation. Yeah, some of them overlap. If they, most of the ones that kind of have merged together, like the the Iroquois Confederacy, is made up of a lot of different um, different tribes that have merged together, and the um, the Mandans um, and the the other ones that they've merged with, they they have interrelated meanings. So they've taken bits and pieces from um, culture to culture. But it, it's pretty much all this, um, kind of the same thing. But if the tribes are close enough, they share um, kind of the same sacredness of color and everything. Because the Navajo and Hopi both have a speckled corn. Um, it's called Navajo robin's egg, but the Hopi also have a form of it. And it varies according to each mesa and village that you go to. But they, they've traded back and forth for thousands of years. So the, the same religious ideas and um, sacredness and color preferences and everything they they were traded too as well especially when they all merged together they kind of had to they didn't have a choice 
So the modern corn that we have, the sweet modern white and yellow corn that we have, is a combination, just like the modern strawberry of North and South American, and well, Latin American too, uh, corn plants. Uh, pretty much all modern sweet corn is descended from the Cholpi land race that originated in the Peruvian highlands between about 2400 BC to about um, really about 100 to 0 AD because the, the wild corn ancestor was introduced into South America and Peru in 2500 BC and after it was introduced it became the previous forms of Confitae Morocho, the now extinct Confitae Travinci, um, Proto Cooley corn, the black uh, Incan corn. It was actually a popcorn before it was a flower corn. It, it turned into a flower corn uh, during the, Mo, uh, the Moche civilization era, about 800 AD. But, it, but the trophy was a genetic mutation of all the popcorn that was being grown. And it turned the kernel into a wrinkled one that had a lot of sugar in it. And it, sweet corn was never popular at first when it first um, came into existence because it just didn't, it didn't store very well because of the sugar that it contained. So it went bad pretty quickly. So not very many um, tribes and people really messed with it. But, um, but the Aztecs, the Inca, and the, the Mayans and some of the other um, tribes, they really – got a taste for it being such a sweet corn and they started using it a lot and it became very sacred. Um, Trophy and um, some of the other earlier land races had a lot of human sacrifices given to it to be sure that it would actually produce. But um, modern Trophy is um, a grenade-shaped eared corn. Most South American corns are grenade-shaped because they get it from the, the popcorn ancestors. And they... Uh, but trophy is, it's a it's a very tall sweet corn. I grew it um, last year. I have it planted this year. It gets about 22 to 24 foot tall. So we've come a long way. But it exists in a white form, a yellow form, a red form, and some of it is even pink and blue. But it's it it's one of those very ancient types of corn that is like the popcorns, and it exists in a flower form, an actual sweet corn form like um, Jer has at Baker Creek and a um, popcorn form, which I have. And I'm probably one of the only few that actually have the popcorn form. It's, it's an extremely rare form that um, exists. But it's, it comes in different colors and different shapes because when it was introduced into Mexico after um, it was uh, selected for in Peru, it turned into maize dulce, um, which means sweet corn in, the, in their language there in Mexico. But in Mexico, it, it's in white form, yellow form, red form. I've never seen a blue form in Mexico, but I know the darker colored forms exist in Peru. It's just a matter of finding it because each um, each region and each department in Peru grows um, sometimes different versions. The, the names always vary depending on um, each location that one goes to. A lot of the corns have different um, different names, but they all correspond to a specific land race. And, and when I f first was posting things from uh, Jared's collection that I have, it was interesting because you were like, oh, that's that land race. And I was like, darn it, how does he know what everything is? <laughs> and it's because you yeah. understand that yeah. the, the, the yeah. mothers of all these different derivations. And it was funny because 
when I told you what I had done, uh, where I had taken two different similar types of Highland corn, you're like, well, those are the same land race. I was like, oh, well, that's why I did that probably because I saw that there were similar genetic patterns. Um, so getting back to back to the beginning, so you have this huge knowledge of corn. You have this legacy of corn. You have this heritage of corn. You have this, your parents' knowledge and wisdom distilled upon you and their experience and, and their intellect. And you're in school right now, too. Uh, you're a college student. You've got the fire in your, in, in, in your belly for corn and beans. You've got all these projects going on that um, are really inspiring, especially for someone your age to be doing. So share with us how many corn varieties are you preserving? How many corn varieties are you breeding? What are some special highlights? And then tell, tell us about your, your, cor your corn seed library. Uh, my, let's see. My actual seed bank maintains about, it was 200, but after I have, I've gotten some more. So it's probably closer to 300 um, different types of corn, majority of them being um, South American and other land races. Um, but a bigger handful is um, heirloom corns as well from um, a lot of families like my corn come from. But all of it, I, I, um, I, hand pollinate everything i try to plant between 100 to 200 um seeds of each different variety i don't always get to because sometimes i don't have i don't get that much seed donated to my seed bank but um i hand pollinate everything and try to try to keep everything pure i use tassel bags and silk bags to ensure um no gmo contamination or really any other corn in general is um able to to get in but I have about probably about 300 different um, different corns that I maintain and grow. I have about probably 100 to 150 planted right now that are currently growing for this year alone. Wow. So how much land does that take up? It it really depends on how uh, how I decide to plant. Um, the, the different types. Some of the tribal corns I can put in um, in the three sister mounds, and I usually do. That helps save space. And I'm testing this year with um, some of these South American corns to grow them in the mounds to see how um, how they do like that. See if I can save space. But I have probably I'd say about two acres right now. I usually plant stuff pretty pretty close together to save space because when I hand pollinate with tassel and silk bags, I don't have to worry about cross-contamination. And plus half the stuff never actually tassels at the same time as something else. So I don't, I really don't ever have to worry about it. Can you, can you explain to uh, everyone how, I mean, you probably have your own special method of hand pollinating. So I, I'd love to hear it. Uh, let's see. I have the video put together. I need to get it get it finished uh, and get it posted. But um, for most of you that have seen the tassel of a corn plant, the tassel is the male part that has anthers and makes the pollen that has to pollinate the silk, which is what looks like hair. And that is what um, what uh, the pollen has to fall onto or get into in order to make a kernel. Every silk that you see is a kernel on an ear or two kernels. But what I do, I usually get um, um, all of the, I plant about between 50 to 100 
um, seed of a particular land race, heirloom, a variety, whatever you want to call it. And I let them grow as they please. And when they start initiating um, ears, because you can usually tell when an ear is coming off the stalk, because the, the, the node that it, it'll come out of will start to swell. And I put a shoot bag immediately on that before the silk actually comes out. And after some of the silk starts poking out, maybe a few days later to a week later, it depends on the land race or variety. I take a pair of scissors and cut about an inch, a half inch to an inch of the ear off to let all of the silk have a better uh, method of showing itself and coming out. Because the more silk you have, the more the fuller the ear of corn you have. So that's that's what I try Whoa. to do. So you prune once again, pruning for the win. You say you prune your corn, uh, your corn ears. Um, how many days after they start budding out? Um, it really depends. Um, usually, I do it when when you start to see like the first silk or the first couple, three or four silks starting to poke out of the ear. Do you cut That's when I cut silk? it back. Because if, if you do it any sooner or if you cut too deep, you'll damage the ear and that might cause either smut or it'll cause the ear to abort. So so how, do you cut the um, any of the uh, silks when you do that or do you cut literally around in a circle until you get inside? I cut the usually if this I usually try to wait till the silk is already showing and I usually cut the silk with part of the ear as well. Oh wow! So, okay. So it, it it just allows better more pollen to get to the silk to get to the ear. That's that's the only reason I do it because I want to be sure I get a, as a as much of a full ear as I possibly can. You sir are the corn ninja. This is amazing. All right, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Um, and then once uh, you usually need to, you got to be sure you give corn a lot of water. It's a very water loving uh, corn uh, corn. Yeah, corn is, corn is a very water-loving plant. I'll get it right eventually. But it, it needs a lot of water, and especially to for um, the silk to grow, it needs water. The silk won't grow without water. So I usually uh, wait maybe a day to two days. Some varieties grow silk faster than others. But once the silk is out, maybe like uh, another inch to two inches, I um, get a tassel bag and... Depending on if I grow corn in a in the ground in a row or in a pot, but it's the same process regardless. I take a tassel bag and I go down each each row or I go to each pot depending on which way I grow it, and I shake pollen from um, all of the plants I have of the partic particular variety, and I uh, put all of it in one bag and I shake it up and then I just pour that on as many ears as I possibly have, because that way it you get the genetic diversity without inbreeding and a genetic depression within the, the variety. Sorry. It's okay. I was, uh, getting something wet outside the, the door of my studio. So I had to just jump up for two seconds. That kind of information is I, I I don't know where you learn you learn from your parents, right? Most of it, yes. They <laughs> when I was younger, they they wouldn't tell me everything, so they made me learn on my own. So a lot of it actually just comes from personal experience. I've been working with land races for seven years now, 
So I've grown so much and I work with them practically every day. So I pretty much know them very well. That's incredible. So you also work with beans, right? Yeah, I also work with beans. Corn is my main, it was my first interest. And then not long after that, I kind of got into beans. And since, since a lot of corns have day length issues, a lot of beans do too. So I work with a lot of, a lot of tribal corn and tribal beans as well as a lot of South American um, beans as well, especially lima beans. I love the South American lima beans. Yeah, the, uh, you were working with one that I, I, got, I got one of, and the person who collected had no idea what it was, and you instantly knew it. You were like, oh, that's that. And it, it's really inspiring to me to see someone at your age going around being able to ID a huge spectrum of seeds, having this you know, lexicon of, of vocabulary and understanding of the genetic history behind these seeds as if it was you know, the history of, 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 of the European rise and fall, you know, the thing that we're trained to learn. Uh -huh. You actually you know, understood something much more important, <laughs> uh, much yeah. more fundamental to almost every single person's life. And it's inspiring. It really absolutely is. And so tell us more about the mission of your seed bank and tell us more about some of your seed breeding projects because um, I can't wait for your videos to come out. We'll share those uh, absolutely. But I really want to I, I wanna get some of the crazy land race that you had with where it was a combination of like everything. I've never seen anything like that one. Yeah, the the uh, the breeding I try to do, I try to do mostly for like disease and insect tolerance and everything, because um, that's that's really one of the big issues of um, of today is the um, the disease and the insects that we have. Because GMOs are beginning to fail. My dad does a lot of research into that, and he's he's found that a lot of that stuff is already already starting to break down and everything, but. Uh, most of the breeding I do, it is try to like for drought tolerance, for corn borer, for um, earworm and stuff like that. And it, the the one that I uh, show that you you pr probably really more so fell in love with, the Elsie Corbin Spotted Flower. Uh, I only breed with land races and heirlooms. I don't use any GMO corn of any type whatsoever. So, because the genetic diversity that the land races and most of the heirlooms have when if they're cross if you are knowledgeable enough of what they are and what they will look like you can cross two together and pretty much know what what you're going to get but elsie's corn um was a really more so an accidental cross um but i i finished selecting it for the bright colors that it had because it had um a, it, there's a sister to it but it's not as colorful but it's it's bred from two South American corns, and thank goodness they lost their daily sensitive issues when they crossed together. But one of them was a uh, lowland corn anyway, so it it um, it took more so the height and the um, the pro, uh, productivity of it. Is it but, a flower uh, corn? The yeah, the spotted one that you saw at the uh, heirloom festival. Yeah, is that is that is that a uh, flower corn? Yeah, it's a flower corn. I suspect it's probably also a, um, I don't want to say sweet corn, but a green corn, like you could use like to grill with or um, whatever you want to call it. Because one of the parents of it is a, is eaten that way. 
and it, it took the kernel size and everything from that particular land race. So it probably could be eaten that way too. I've not got enough seed of it myself, so I haven't been able to try it. But I, ha I have a few people growing it out. And hopefully I can get some seed to you uh, this year so you can grow it out um, there in California as well. Heck yeah, I would love that. Yeah, my family, as soon as we started eating uh, flour corn fresh, we, we, we decided not to uh, ever buy sweet corn again. But um, I might be tempted back if it's something wild and cool. Um, <laughs> it, it, I mean, yeah. I, I have yeah. Chopi. I have, I have that, that, that sweet corn seed uh, from Jer. Um, I could open up an area and put it in. I know of an area. Because, you know, I'll, we'll let the audience know here about this. So, to fight the day length sensitivity... I planted on the dark side of a hill. So if you think of the hill as going coinciding with the, 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 the rising and setting sun, it works like a clock. Well, the top of the hill is the house, but on the other side, it gets the most day length, and then by the afternoon, it's focused on the dark side. So it's tucked away in this back corner that I grew this corn behind these giant uh, oak trees. And it's the wettest and darkest area on the land. Uh, other than the creek by by the highway where I don't really want to garden. So I started there and it grew really well. I got so many seeds, but it was so wet and so dark that 80% of the corn ears that I grew, and I, and I got like six to eight uh, ears of corn that were successful, 80% um, of the stuff I got turned into uh, that black fungus. And so I had great success, but I need to just be around to watch it closer so I don't overwater it so I get um, a whole lot more ears this year. But you did it totally different, and I'll, I'll let you share uh, how you did it. But that's how I, I did the permaculture way. I did the microclimate. But you did it very intelligently, which is equally permaculture in my mind. So why don't you share how you did it? Um, there, uh, Matt's way, it is a good way to do it. It really is. But, um, I can do it where we are in Kentucky slash Tennessee, but usually if our last frost date is in, it's usually near the end of April, but I had stuff planted on Earth Day this year. And usually if I get stuff planted by Earth Day here, it'll naturally tassel and silk and make at the same time. But, um... I also, the, the main way, the, I don't want to say odd way, but you found it pretty interesting um, when I told you what I did. Um, I grew some of the giant corn that was brought up from um, South America that Jer had. It's the, the land race is called Cusco Gigante, and it's the largest kernel corn in the world. And it's one of the most productive in the valleys, that it, the sacred valley that it's grown in down there. And so it has extreme potential for feeding the ever-growing world population, but it, it has extreme day length issues because the kernel is so large and it takes so long for the corn to, to um, develop and produce. Because Cusco Gigante alone is about a 250 to almost 300 day corn. It's intense. And do what? That's how I was just saying it's intense to try to grow these. I mean, for me, I planted oh. in June and I harvested in December. Yeah, it's, it, it's very intense, and it's usually planted in the fall or late, or um, I, I say fall, but for us here in the States, it would be fall. But most of the corn down there grows in, like, our, our winter months. So they harvest corn in, like, February and 
January and March down there. But the Peru and most of South America is closer to the equator. So the days are more equal and it, it gives them a longer growing season. But when I, I planted the Cusco Gigante that I have, I also have some other forms that I've had people send me. I planted them, we have greenhouses, but um, I planted them in pots in the greenhouse in our winter months in the States. So I planted, I planted the plants I have now in January and they're getting ready to tassel um, now. So you can, you can plant them in the, the U.S.'s natural short day lengths, and it will not really, it, it won't confuse the plant, but it'll make it think it's in its native habitat, and it will make it silk and tassel at the same time. So that's what I do. That's what I do with the beans as well. I plant them in our natural day lengths, uh, short day lengths here, which is usually extremely early spring or winter, and that, that triggers them to flower and produce. Amazing. You can also artificial shade them with a bucket, but I, I'm, I'm testing that this year, but it makes the plants look very sickly and they have to grow out of it before they, um, before they were really do anything. But I prefer planting in natural short day lengths than really, really doing anything else. Less is more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what are your plans? Because I know there, there are some rumblings of you doing a book. Um, yeah, the, me and about uh, myself and three other people are the big, um, the big masterminds behind it. But we have, we have other seed people like um, William Weaver, he's helping. Um, I think Joe is. I don't know. I haven't, really, I haven't spoken to him. But one of the other ones have him, uh, Weaver, him, and a whole bunch of other seed gurus, including yourself, are helping write this um, heirloom and lanterace seed book that hopefully will be done by next year. The initial plan was for like this December, and well, that's not happening. So, but we we're trying we're trying to make a giant catalog of um, 300 varieties per volume. And it, hopefully it'll be like an annual volume of these um, of these heirloom and lanterae seed, which will be scattered between categories such as beans, corn, squash, tomatoes, lettuce, cucumbers, melons, etc., etc. But we want to get a we kind of want to get a description of every variety. We want to get pictures. We want to get people that are involved. We want to get their stories, how to grow it, where to get seed from list all of the names that it's known by because that, that's a lot of confusing information in the seed world i found it's a lot of a lot of the same varieties have like 30 different names and no one realizes that they do so we we really just want to compile all of these varieties so people can learn and know that they exist as well as opening up a seed farm ourselves with the the profit that is um, obtained off of this book in order to get get these very rare varieties into the into circulation and into the hands of more people before they go extinct. Because a lot of what is going in this book or, or these books is extremely rare. And most of them, like a lot of the stuff that I have in my seed bank, I'm one of only two people that actually grow half of what we're putting in this book. And that's and some of them have never even been heard of at all because they're only in the hands of maybe one person. But we just want to try to broaden people's um, knowledge of all of this stuff and everything. But hopefully, hopefully we'll get it together and get everything done. But we, 
we just want to try to save and get as much information put out there as we possibly can. Because I'm doing the I'm the um, the head of the the corn and the South American bean section of this, but the the other people they're doing different um, different parts of it. But I'm the corn and the the bean bean guru or whatever you want to call me. Nice. Well, I can't wait to check out that book and start sharing that book, and I can't wait to check out your videos. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Do you have a website for all this? Uh, it, I do, and it, it doesn't contain everything I have in my seed bank. I need to update it. I've been so busy with college and trying to get all of my seed bank stock planted and increased that it's, it's way behind on being updated. But I'll, I'll send you the, the link so you can post it with, with this um, recording here so people can see at least what somewhat I have. Not all the photos will be on it because I'm, I'm still way behind. But I'll, I need to get everything up there. But I do have a website. and has my contact information on it, too. Awesome. And let's make sure we get your, uh, your talk videoed next time so that we could all share with everybody. Yes. I, I was hoping to get it, um, get it recorded then. But I'm, I'm, uh, since I have most of the seed that was um, in, the, in my presentation, I'm really just thinking about uh, basically recording it myself. Uh, and having actual seed examples there to be able to show show interested folks. I'm probably just going to do that here pretty soon. That's smart. Show and tell is much better. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I agree. I completely agree. So it, 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 for those of you listening, we're talking about the Heirloom Expo in Santa Rosa in California this fall in September. Uh, he's going to be speaking. His parents are going to be speaking. I'll be there. I'll be helping out. And I'll be speaking too. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll film as much as we can uh, to try to capture and bottle the excitement. But it's absolutely it's it's my I'm I, you know I love the spring planting festival. That's where uh, Stephen and I met. Um, but the heirloom expo is where I really got um, really switched on to uh, to permaculture and seed saving in the extreme. It's all Jerry's fault. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Blame it on Jer. It's always Jer. It's Jer. He's he's, he's that upset uh, that heirloom seed obsessed Baker Creek owner. But we, I love him to death though. Him and his family and all of the workers at Baker Creek. I love him to death though. Amazing yeah, I'm people. I'm right there with him. I'm I'm as enamored as he is for sure. I mean, we just walked around for days at the uh, at the spring planting festival just talking about seeds. It was so much fun. Yeah, that's what, that's what he and I did too. He he and my uh, my dad and I and him. That's pretty much what we did too. But it's we're all obs crazy obsessed seed people. So no one else would understand us, but we understand each other perfectly fine. Yes, it's wonderful. I loved it. Well, thank you so much for at the drop of the hat, you know, skyping me. I really appreciate that, and I can't wait to share this with everyone. Oh, you're welcome, Matt. Thanks for getting in touch with me. If you ever need me to do it again, I'm happy to. All right. I have Thank a lot of knowledge it. in my head. Oh, yeah, and we definitely will. And uh, Yeah, for sure, we definitely will. And let's get your stuff recorded, and I'll put it out on my podcast, too. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Matt. All right. Have a good one. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was an incredible interview with Stephen Smith. He's going to do some amazing things for a lot of people, I believe, in his lifetime. He has an amazing understanding of corn and of genetics. 
and the history of those corns and the history of that genetics. I'm excited to hear his talk. I'm excited to share it with you. Check out what he's doing. If you can, look him up. And if you can make it to the expo this fall, see you there. All right, have a great week from Permaculture Tonight. Thank you.